All right, everybody is thinking about sitting down, I think. Okay, we have a little deviation from our normal plan today. We were going to have a baptism, but uh, no one signed up to be baptized, so I figured I'd teach on baptism. So if that convicts you in any way, that's up to you personally, not me. Um, anyway, but I thought it would be a good time for us to just dedicate one week to talk about baptism. It's also fitting today. Uh, we're also going to take the Lord's table. So we're going to have the Lord's Supper and a teaching on baptism. And these are the two ordinances that the Lord uh, left us with. And that's what we'll uh, spend our time talking about, baptism. And then Pastor Dan will lead us um, in the Lord's table later. Um, if you could, turn your Bibles. And I think this is paramount to the Great Commission, so Matthew 28. Let's read that and then we'll pray. Matthew 28, verse 18. I just want you to see the progression that Jesus has for his disciples. And think about this in terms of salvation and baptism. Okay? So verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. So go. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the first command, obviously the, the goal of this command, we've talked about this for a couple years here at our church, is making disciples. So that's the command that Jesus is giving his disciples and then us as the church as well. These are kind of our marching orders, is to go and make disciples. Once you make disciples, the term disciple seems to um, assume Someone is a believer, right? Once you become a disciple, you're a follower of Jesus. You've turned from your sinful ways, and now you're embracing Jesus as Savior. And at that point, you get baptized. So go, make disciples. They've become believers, and then baptize them. Uh, so there's a, an order to baptism. And we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about the why of baptism. What does it mean? Why do we do it? How do we do it? Who gets baptized? And then we're going to talk about maybe some of the other ways that other traditions and denominations treat baptism and how is that compared to ours. And lastly, I have a little note just on um, where did we get infant baptism? Where did that come from? So I'll talk about 30 seconds about that because there's not much information about that. Um, I will apologize as well before I pray for the format of the handout um, that you have. I have no idea why the font on the Roman numerals is so much larger. Um, it has something to do with how I um, emailed something to myself and then printed this morning at home. And when things at 5 a.m., I don't know what happens, so I can't really take responsibility for that. But let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would bless our time. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you, Lord, and we uh, see it as a great privilege, Lord, to be here today. Lord, we're only here today because of the work that you've done in our lives um, by sending your son to die on a cross um, on our behalf, taking um, the punishment of, this, of sin that we deserved, um, and Lord, the reality that he also 
conquered sin and death by rising again. And Lord, we praise you for that, that you have set us apart um, through the perfect work of your son, Jesus. And Lord, I ask that as we consider these things, Lord, um, about baptism and to some extent the Lord's Supper, Lord, I pray that we would um, be even more worshipful. Lord, I pray that we would see the amazing grace that you've provided on our behalf and the great um, honor that we have to be unified uh, with Jesus. So, Lord, we praise you for the grace that you've poured out. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as I alluded to earlier, we're going to get into the, the word um, several times today, so have your Bible handy. But as way of introduction, so Jesus has left us with two ordinances. I'm doing a significant amount of study before this week. This week I started studying uh, for this lesson because it kind of necessitated it. Um, but I've been doing a lot of study more recently on things like justification and the Reformation because I'm going to be talking about the Protestant Reformation here in a few weeks. Um, but the two ordinances that Jesus left us with were are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now we compare that to um, our colleagues, uh, uh, other believers or other people in other uh, denominations compared to the Roman Catholic Church has seven sacraments. Um, so we've kind of boiled down those historical seven sacraments down to two in the Protestant tradition. Uh, I think that's following the uh, testimony of the Bible and Jesus particularly. Um, we refer to the baptism and the Lord's Supper as ordinances. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church and even some of other Protestant uh, uh, denominations, uh, your Anglicans, some of your Presbyterian groups, your Episcopalians, uh, even your Methodists will refer to some of those the ordinances as sacraments, right? So the sacraments reflect the things that in the Roman Catholic system of sacra uh, the sacramental system, the things that you do to achieve, um, I guess, merit uh, of Christ's merit for yourself. So you're kind of always working through the sacramental system in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, as Protestants, we don't believe that we're working unto salvation, but we're working um, as way of sanctification. So it's a little bit different, but in the Reformation, um, Luther particularly boils, he's the first of the primary reformers, and he pretty immediately boils down within the first five years of the Protestant Reformation that there should only be two sacraments, not seven. At one point in his writing, he kind of says there should be three. He kind of has a place for penance or repentance, but if you look at it closely, it's not too different than what we would hold to for that, but we don't see it as a, a separate ordinance as well as he does. Um, so it's a little bit different. Um, also, as we talk about baptism, all the reformers that we know and care for and love hold to infant baptism. How do we deal with that? That's kind of interesting, right? Um, I mean, I feel like we, we believe we have it right here as uh, Bible-believing Christians, so that's kind of interesting. Your Luther's, your Calvin's, and even a much of the Puritan tradition still holding to infant baptism. Okay, interesting. Even the writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which I have cited for you, that's the WCF on there, hold to a view of infant baptism. So our goal today is to kind of outline a view, a, view, a biblical view of believers' baptism. Um, in general, about the ordinances both baptism and the Lord's Supper, 
The Westminster Confession of Faith has a great line about what does it mean and why do we do these things. And just both baptism and the Lord's Supper are portraying something, right? They're a picture of something else. So whether it's the death um, and resurrection of the Lord in the Lord's Supper or, or in baptism, or is it the bruised body and the blood of Jesus in the elements of the Lord's Supper? They do picture something for us. And the Lord commands us to remember him in each of those things. Um, and I think the confession of faith kind of talks about how do we handle those things. Is it just us doing something kind of out of rote memory, or is there more to it than that? And I think the quote I gave you here in the Westminster Confession of Faith kind of in chapter 27 kind of gives you a little bit more that there's more going on than just um, doing something rote religiously. And it says, there is in every sacrament... There's two sacraments, but when you practice them, a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. All right, so the sign is what is the is taking the Lord's Supper or it's baptism. That's the sign, and it's pointing to something greater, which is the reality of what we have in Christ, mainly our union with Christ. So between the sign and the thing signified, whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. So in some aspect, there is a relationship between our remembering as we take the Lord's Supper or as we publicly proclaim what's happened in our lives in baptism that's going on there. The confession goes on to say that there's four purposes for the ordinances, which I think I gave you in your handout. And they are, one, they represent Christ and his benefits to us. We get to physically see this when we practice the Lord's Supper in baptism. So you're seeing a physical manifestation of, a vis of an invisible reality in your heart. The ordinances confirm our interest in Christ, that he has died and, risen, and arisen for the forgiveness of our sins. Um, the ordinances mark out the church from the world. So if you observe and you, if you have submitted to the Lord in baptism and you take the Lord's Supper... The world doesn't do that. That's an identifying mark of Christians. Um, and then they remind us and help us to engage um, our work in service to God. So we should come and leave um, celebrations of either baptism or the Lord's Supper uh, propelled to do ministry for the Lord. Um, so we see the ordinances are important and necessary for the believer. Necessary is a very important word in this whole discussion about baptism. Um, it is important that we observe these things, and it's necessary for us to do them and to obey. Um, there will be debates on the word necessary as we go forward, though. Um, and as I said, we'll practice the other one today after the worship service. So what is the meaning of baptism? Section, uh, point two on your handout. Um, first and foremost, let me say emphatically, baptism does not save so um, that's the first reality we need to know. Um, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Works do not save. Works give evidence to true conversion, the true conversion of the person. Baptism is a depiction of an inner reality. A couple of biblical analogies. Uh, the thief on the cross. Together, you will be with me in paradise, Jesus tells the thief on the cross. Never baptized, right? So he is in heaven, based on Jesus' proclamation. 
Uh, Simon the Magician in Acts 8 um, most likely is not in heaven, although he was baptized. So baptism does not give a sign of, uh, it does not make one saved. So it's not necessary to be baptized in order to be saved, but it is necessary to practice it out of obedience to the Lord. Um, Faith alone unites us to Christ. Baptism is the visible seal of our union with Christ. Okay, if you could turn with me to Romans 6, that'd be great. Let's just start with verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you can see that um, in verse 3, that we have been baptized into Christ Jesus, into his death, um, and we are united with Jesus, um, and our baptism is a visible representation of that. So it's not like, um, let's say, I was getting baptized... It's not like I, when I enter the water and go down that I actually um, become united with Christ. The reality is I'm already, as a believer, I'm already united with Christ prior to that. Baptism just gives us a visible sign of what that reality is in my heart, okay, in my life as a believer. Um, if you go to Galatians 3... Uh, Let's see, let's go with verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So once again, we're united with Christ. um, And when we're baptized, it just shows that publicly that we're united with him. Um, baptism is also a sign of the gospel. That's another point for it. It affirms and visibly portrays that this person has turned from sin and is now united with Christ. Um, a lot of times in the Old Testament, particularly, water signifies death. Um, how did God choose to judge the world in the time of Noah? Flood. Um, so there's judgment there. Also, um, you think of Pharaoh um, as he's going after the Israelites, as they're going towards the promised land and cross uh, the Red Sea, God judges uh, Pharaoh there. So there's a way in the water represents the judgment that is due to us. Um, and we are in some way, just think about the, the reality of if you're, we're really quick with baptism, but imagine if we just held people under for like three or four more seconds in the immersion process, right? We just held them, that, they would be like dead, right? They can't breathe. We can't breathe underwater, right? So I think it's supposed to symbolize that 
we are dead now, and then when we rise up again, there's newness of life. Um, so rising out of the water represents new life in Christ. So that's the signs of the gospel that you can see in there. We're dead to sin, that former life, and now we're new and risen, uh, united with Christ, ready to pursue new life. Um, the baptism also pictures the benefits that we have of union in Christ. In some way, um, when you're in the water, you're being cleansed, right? Water is a cleansing agent. Um, so you're being cleansed and forgiven. Um, Acts 2 and Acts 22 talk about um, those that are being baptized are being cleansed and forgiven. That's not the primary thing happening there, but it is something that's happening. It pictures the cleansing um, of our hearts and who we are. Um, so there's an aspect of picturing us being washed and cleansed. Um, of course, we've already been washed and cleansed at the time of salvation. Um, we're also, it also pictures a new spirit-empowered life. That's the walking and newness of life um, that we experience. The words that are said when someone's being baptized are all biblical. Um, it's not something we've just come up with. Um, but rise again, or I baptize you and you come again, rise up and walk in newness of life. That's spirit-empowered walking. Uh, so it also identifies the believer as belonging to Christ. Um, baptism, do, participating in baptism as a believer is an act of obedience. You're saying, I'm doing this because, God, you have commanded me to do that. Um, so you are obedient. You're also submitting to Christ's lordship. And that part in Matthew 28 we just read, there's an aspect of, uh, and I read one commentary that said, commentator that said, it's almost like um, you become a believer, you've been made a disciple for that great commission, um, and now you've been baptized, um, and then you're ready to observe everything I have commanded you. And you're almost saying, as you come out of the water, Lord, I am committed um, to observing everything you've commanded of me. Um, so it's kind of a, as you're being baptized, you're proclaiming those things to the public that you belong to Jesus and that Jesus is yours. But, okay, so we're Americans for the most part here. Um, and we love to be individuals, right? And a lot of times, evangelical America emphasizes the work of uh, Christ um, in us individually, which is important, obviously. Um, yet, there's a community aspect of baptism, too. Um, it's not, the, it's important that baptism is done, and we'll get to this when we talk about the mode, um, but in some way, you're standing before other believers as you proclaim that I am, I am a follower of Jesus. And in some way, they're participating as witnesses in your proclamation, right? So there's a community, just like the Lord's Supper, right? We, we take it together as a church body. Uh, we do the same thing in baptism. Um, there's almost something, as I was reading this, I was thinking, maybe, maybe we should do some things differently. As somebody gives their testimony and rises again, we all hoop and holler and say amen but maybe there's even something else we could say more formal, like welcome brother or something like that. I don't have, I'm just thinking of this off the top of my head now. Um, but maybe there's an aspect of us understanding that we're committing to each other because as one is baptized, um, it's almost like you're baptized into the universal church of the Lord and you're doing it within the context of a local church too. Um, so if you go to Ephesians 2, 
that would be helpful here as I get back on my notes. Nineteen and twenty. Actually, let's start with 17, because I like the far-off language. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. Think about that. Preached peace to you who were far off, distant from God, separated from God. And peace to those who were near. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are now no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So what we are seeing is um, now through, um, in salvation, we're all part of the household of God. And um, um, baptism is kind of that sign that shows, yes, we are, I'm in, I'm publicly proclaiming this inward reality in my life, and I'm doing it, for the most part, in the context of the church. Um, and that's important for us to consider. The reality is you can't, you can't be a Christian um, apart from the church. So when you covenant as uh, a believer in the Lord, you're part of his church. Um, in baptism, a person says, I'm committed to God's people, both universally, the universal church, and the local. Most New Testament examples of baptism outline the involvement of the church. Um, here, yeah, go ahead and be, somebody want to be my skeptic, Phil, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, they're on the road, right, and they're reading the book of Isaiah, and uh, through the word of God and the reading of God's word, um, the Ethiopian eunuch is saved, and he says, hey, I see a body of water, let me be baptized, right, what's preventing me from being baptized? Obviously not, it was just Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, maybe there was somebody traveling with them, potentially, um, but not in the context of a local church, right? That's just randomly happening. Um, that, that's not normative, actually, in the, in the New Testament. It's more likely that it's um, with groups of people in households which were representative churches at the time. Uh, so there you go. If that was your rebuttal to me about that, there you go. I've, I've blocked it. Um, so that's what is baptism. What does it symbolize? So clearly, uh, the main objective I'm trying to say is that Baptism doesn't save, but it is a sign of what's happened in a believer's life. So who is baptism for? Um, it is for those who have believed in Christ and who follow him. That's very important. Um, anytime that, for the most part, the normative uh, testimony of the New Testament is that those who are baptized have believed. It's not those who have not confessed Christ that are being baptized. Um, and just a couple notes around that. Um, if in Matthew and John, the references here that I have, those who evangelize are commanded to baptize those who believe. So go and preach. Um, they believe, baptize them. Okay? The biblical references to baptism in Acts tell of people who have repented and believed. Um, doesn't say, just go baptize people. And throughout the history of the church, and by the way, 
the ordinances are a big deal. I mean, battles, all of Europe is divided post-Reformation over baptism and the Lord's Supper. Not justification by faith alone. It's divided over um, the ordinances. So, this is a big deal. Um, and the reality is, where was I? <laughs> um, you can't just, when uh, Christianity was taken over, where Constantine legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire, and these other leaders eventually throughout the ages of the Middle Ages became leaders, and they were Christian, and they would take over another land, they couldn't just go in and they, they had forced baptisms, right? They just baptized everybody and said, oh, you're now a Christian. But there was no belief there. There's no faith. Um, but they were so dedicated to the reality of, hey, we've got to make sure they get baptized because there's something that they see in baptism as salvation. Um, so that doesn't work. You have to have someone believe. Um, there has to be faith. Um, and those, I gave you a, there's plenty of references in Acts under number three uh, that will demonstrate that for you. Um, Paul's letters also connect two truths, that those who believe have been baptized and that those who have been baptized believe. So just the opposite of that, just that if you believe, you get baptized. If you've been baptized, you believe. Now, I'm saying that generally, obviously. There's obviously people that aren't true believers that have been baptized, um, but there's all sorts of reasons why someone might do that. Um, but Paul's letters are consistent with those who believe have been baptized and those who uh, have been baptized believe. Um, I'm, I'm making myself, getting myself to an argument about who is not, who should not be baptized. So just stay with me here for a second. Uh, Peter also outlines the close connection between faith and baptism. Acts 2.38, he says, repent and be baptized. Okay, that's pretty important. Repent and be baptized. Um, so there's a connection between um, repentance and being baptized. It would be wrong to say, repent and be baptized and now you're saved, because that would contradict all of Scripture, the rest of Scripture I've outlined. Um, but there is a close connection between faith and baptism. Um, what I'm trying to argue here is that um, if you've truly come to faith, it's appropriate to follow the Lord in, in obedience in baptism. Okay? All right, point four. How should one be baptized? The Greek word for baptize is one of the easiest Greek words there is, baptizo, which means to plunge, dip, or immerse something in water. Okay, so plunge, dip, or immerse. All that has the um, connotation of submersion. Um, in the New Testament, New Testament baptism, people were immersed in water or put completely under and then brought up again. Mark 1.5, John was baptizing in the River Jordan. Not next to, um, on it, near it, in. People were in the river being baptized. Um, the reference I talked about with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, when they came up, it says, when they came upon a body of water, they went down into the water and came up out of the water. So that implies complete immersion. And just think about it. The, so other modes of baptism are what? There's the pouring of water. There's the sprinkling of water on infants or children or adults as well. 
But does, if you're thinking of the symbolism of baptism, right, if we really like how that's pointing us to a, a greater reality of dying to self and rising to walk in newness of life, does pouring water over your head or pouring or somebody sprinkling you represent those things to you? It seems to make sense that if, if we want to really exercise what the symbol, uh, what the sign looks like about the inward reality, that immersion makes a lot of sense. All right? I'm sure, I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. You guys understand this, but I'm trying to give you some foundational things to understand. Um, so the symbolism is that we are unified with Christ in his death, burial, and then resurrection. Um, let's look at Romans 6 again, because I think this, I've read this earlier, but we'll read it again, because I think it's appropriate. Romans 6, 3 through 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So, immersed in the water. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Um, so, you can see that the symbolism of baptism does point to um, immersion as the proper mode. And I think it's defended biblically as well. I also think that it's, um, it would be appropriate, based on the arguments we were making or I was making earlier about um, the importance of the community aspect of baptism, um, that it be done within the confines of a local church. Um, now, there are aspects in unique circumstances. I mean, when you're out ministering to someone and you've evangelized to them, maybe out in a and there's not a church somewhere nearby, and they want to be baptized, it would be appropriate for them to be baptized, right? Um, but that's not necessarily normative. Um, and where, where a local church exists, it makes sense for baptism to be uh, done in the confines of the local church. But one thing, too, is then you can determine and that you can have people within the church on some level um, agreeing that your testimony is real. They can see, this is how you were, this is how I am now. Um, so there's an important community aspect to the church. Um, and I hope that our understanding of the church just grows and grows um, as we consider these things. Okay, so other views about baptism. This is, this is where it gets fun. Uh, our view that we call, this is great, we get to call ours believers baptism. We might be a little bit more favorable towards our view just in the name that we use. Um, it's important to understand for us that faith precedes baptism. Um, this is also the baptistic view. Uh, so there is one becomes a believer, one trusts, one has faith, and is baptized. Um, other views, the Roman Catholic view. Um, so Roman Catholics baptize uh, infants, or they baptize new converts into Roman Catholicism. Um, but every infant that's born of Catholic uh, parents are baptized as infants. Um, I think they are just poured a little bit of water on their head. The reason that is done is for the Roman Catholics, baptism is necessary. Wait a minute. Didn't, Matt, didn't you just say it's necessary for us? Yes, I did. But it's necessary for salvation. I didn't say it was necessary for salvation for us. It's necessary for obedience and following in Christ-likeness. Um, but for the Roman Catholics, baptism is necessary for salvation. And, they actually, and, and the belief in the church um, is that baptism um, causes that person or that child 
to be regenerate. Okay, so it is a regenerating work. There's a belief that baptism, their belief is that baptism washes away original sin from the infant, and then any sins they've actually committed before being baptized. So, whereas I was making the statement that washing and cleansing is, um, baptism is a picture of how we've been washed and cleansed in Christ, um, Roman Catholic theology would say, um, the baby has now, or whoever has received baptism, has now been washed and cleansed because of that, not because of Christ's work. Um, and this sets up the whole, this is kind of the gateway uh, sacrament. Can I say that? <laughs> it's like the first sacrament, right? Because um, once you have baptism, you don't have original sin anymore, right? Because it's been washed and cleansed from you. Um, this is not my view. Everybody remember, I'm talking about the Roman Catholic view. Um, so you don't have original sin, but what you do need to do is work and get justification uh, um, or atonement, I guess, on some level, for each of the sins you commit subsequently. That's where penance comes in. That's where observation of the mass comes in. That's where all those things come in. And up until the end, which is like the uh, last rites, right? If you guys know any Catholic friends, um, someone's dying, um, they call the priest in. Because the priest comes in and gives them last rites and they take uh, the mass and their sins are taken care of for everything that's happened uh, since the last time they took the mass. Um, all that's built up on top of Christ's righteousness. So you can see why um, there's a difference in our view uh, and theirs. Um, they believe that the sacraments work apart from faith. So the Latin term is ex opere operato. The sacraments operate by the power of the completed sacramental rite. So when you, um, regardless of what your heart attitude is or what your faith is in, if you're taking that uh, Lord's Supper in the Roman Catholic Church or you have been baptized, that in itself ascribes um, justification in some way. It, it's the act doing it, not any heart change or anything like that. So it's a little bit different, substantially different, let me rephrase, than the way we look at it. Um, so in the idea of the ex opere operato is that the work is performed and the sacrament's value is in the work being done and is not dependent on, dependent on the attitude of the faith in the people participating in them. Hence the need for the revival of the biblical teaching of justification by faith um, alone. Not faith plus the mass. Not faith plus um, baptism. Not faith plus last rites. Those things. That's why um, that teaching needs to be corrected. Yet, um, so that's the idea. So baptism in the Roman Catholic Church actually regenerates and saves. Okay? But you always constantly need to work up to being saved because you need to um, make sure that you're cleansed from sin. Yet we have Protestant brothers and sisters um, that hold to infant baptism as well. So that's the Protestant paedo-baptist position. Um, several of Protestant denominations hold to this. Kind of more of your mainline denominations. If I say the term mainline, I'm kind of thinking your Anglican, Presbyterian um, those, those type 
traditional ones that are passed down from uh, the Reformation of the Lutherans. Um, so they still hold to an, an idea of infant baptism. And like I said, the Reformers still held to, for the most part, held to infant baptism. And we'll talk about that in a second. But the Presbyterian view um, of infant baptism, they do not believe, um, at least the biblically sound uh, Presbyterians, uh, do not believe that baptism is administered to infants in a salvific way. So when they baptize babies, they're not saying that they're being saved. However, they do believe that baptism should be administered to the children of believing parents, um, and that's based on uh, their view of kind of covenant theology. Um, this is just one aspect of covenant theology um, that the, uh, the Presbyterians hold to. Uh, they compare baptism, that infants should be baptized uh, because infants were circumcised in the Old Testament, okay? Infant males were circumcised in the Old Testament. Um, Romans 2.29, however, says that true circumcision is inward, not outward, as a, to contradict that. Uh, they believe baptism is parallel to circumcision, um, yet, in, yet circumcision itself did not indicate faith in Israel. It just identified who they were. Uh, true faith, saving faith precedes baptism in the New Testament. That's pretty clear. They also believe that, but they cite the household baptism references in Acts as proof that infants are baptized. Um, that's, that's, I mean, it's, there's some amazing scholars that hold to this and guys that we really love that are really great. So I'm not going to, they're all smarter than me. So, um, yet they hold that the household baptisms recorded. So it'll be something like, so Lydia, they were at Lydia's house and Lydia believed and everyone in her house was baptized. It's almost like Lydia. But in most cases, preaching was done to all the people in the household and it says that the household believed, or they believed. Um, no one, there's nothing clear in the text that says that infants themselves or children you know, that were young were baptized. And they very well could have been if they were young children. They very well could have believed, right? It's not unlikely that a four- or five-year-old would actually have true, genuine, saving faith, and they could be saved. That's a reality. We don't believe in some age of accountability. Um, so there's a possibility that young people truly did get saved in those households. Um, but to say that just because the leader of the household got saved and everybody got baptized because of it, that doesn't seem accurate. But that, that is their argument. Um, but their view isn't that baptism saves, but instead it marks children for maybe what would be a future probable uh, regeneration. That kind of puts the Presbyterians, I think, in an odd situation. So the Roman Catholics are absolutely positive that baptism saves. They're saying that. When you baptize that child, they're regenerate, and they just need to keep working through the sacramental system as they live. They're pretty solid on what they say. We are pretty adamant about, you know what? You, when you get baptized here, you don't get saved. It's just, a, it's, it's, the reality is you've already been saved. And it's just an expression of that salvation. So what, it's all this, so the Presbyterians are kind of caught in the middle here, right? Because they're, it seems like they're just saying this is tied to something in the Old Testament. So there's something about the continuity of the Old Testament and the New Testament that they're holding to. And 
you know what, there is continuity, continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, there's also discontinuity, but there is both. Um, and I don't know if baptism and circumcision are that thing that is uh, continuous, if that's the word, or continuitous. I don't know how to say that word. Um, anyway, just food for thought. You can study that on your own. I'm sure some of you have already done that. Um, but I just want to play out that, say that to you. I mean, R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer, um, these type guys, these great teachers that we all cling to that are so on the money on a lot of things we have disagreement with. But we can still have fellowship with them because they're not saying that baptism is saving uh, children. So we can have fellowship with them. We're probably just not going to have the same local body of church. We're not going to go to their church if we don't agree with them in that way. Uh, then there's a group that I've phrased, I don't even know if this is the right phrase, baptismal regenerationists. I can't even say it the way I typed it. This is kind of your Church of Christ crowd, right? This is the ones that say, okay, not only do you have to be saved, you have to be baptized, and then you can finally be saved. Um, but you kind of have to follow the steps in order to be saved. And I don't know how much that's around as much these days. It could be. But that you still, in order to be saved, you have to be baptized. So you're begging the question of where, Matt, okay, Matt, so you're saying that this biblical view of baptism is that it, proceed, that it is after faith, so most likely someone has to either profess faith or trust or believe in order to be baptized. At what point in church history um, did, did the church start baptizing infants? It's a good question, and I wish I really knew the answer. Um, there are some references. The early church fathers, the ones that are right after the apostles, there's not much information on it. Um, there's kind of the second or third generation of um, what we would call, I guess, church fathers as well. Um, there's a guy named Tertullian. If you guys remember, I talked about him about two years ago. Um, he, in one of his writings, which I think is called, I have it written down, um, on baptism, so imagine that, he's arguing against infant baptism. So, he lives around 200 A.D. So, we're thinking John probably wrote Revelation around 90 A.D. 200 A.D. Um, is Tertullian. And he's already saying, yeah, I don't think we should be doing this. Now, Tertullian's not a great source in every area because he kind of goes off the rails in some areas in some of his monastics when he becomes a monk. But he's saying, let's not do this. So, that, it means it's already pretty influential in the church Around 400, y'all remember your big date edict of, of Milan 313 is when Constantine legalized Christianity. 400, there's already laws within the Roman Empire that are condemning people that do not baptize their children. So we have from 400 AD up until the Reformation's 1517, uh, everybody's baptizing their infants, even the reformers are baptizing their infants, and then come in church history is a group of people called the Anabaptists. Anna, the Latin for uh, Anna is again, uh, or re, so re-baptizers. So everybody that's in this area has been baptized as an infant, but they believe, hey, I've come to faith subsequent to that by reading the scriptures, um, and I've come to faith. I need to be baptized because that's what the Bible says. I want to be obedient to that. And the Anabaptists actually are persecuted on every side in the post-Reformation age. They're persecuted by the Catholics, and they're persecuted by the Reformers. And, and some of it is the actual Reformers, including Luther, 
I mean, Luther is really harsh to the Anabaptists. Um, yet the Anabaptists, it's, it's, if you think Anabaptists, it's like this huge cloak. It's kind of the catch-all. It's kind of like evangelicalism today. It's just the catch-all for everybody that votes Republican. Um, sorry. But, uh, but Anabaptists is this big umbrella. And it's pretty much if you're not a Lutheran, if you're not a follower of Calvin, if you're not a follower of Zwingli, and you're not Roman Catholic, you're an Anabaptist. So there's all these other uh, minutiae involved in Anabaptists. But the one thing they all agree on is the idea of getting baptized again. Um, and Calvin and Luther don't like that because they hold to uh, this view of infant baptism still. Um, so in some ways, the Anabaptists are greatly persecuted. So it's, you know, we kind of only, there's a group in the Middle Ages around 1100 we talked about them last time I taught, the Waldensians. They were followers of a guy named Peter Waldo, and they believed in uh, believer's baptism. Um, but the tradition of the church, for the most part, is wrapped up in infant baptism. It's still major um, parts of Christianity are as well, and parts of false Christianity as well. So, so I don't think I answered the question, really. I just kind of gave you a bunch of details and facts about when we started baptizing infants, but I don't, I don't know why. It could have very well been that, um, you know, people were not, the Bible was not available to everyone for a long period of time. And even in the early church, uh, the lack of literacy and the ability to understand what the scriptures said. Um, so people might have said, hey, I've come to faith. I've been baptized. I'm not going to live that former life. There were some people, including uh, major Christian emperors that withheld baptism from themselves. They didn't want to get baptized when they became Christians because they were afraid that then if they committed sins, they would break fellowship with God. So maybe just some misunderstandings over the course of history and a lack of knowledge of what the scriptures say. So praise the Lord that we have the scriptures for ourselves and they were rediscovered. Um, so, are we good? Do I have any questions? No, don't have any questions. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> after, you can ask me afterwards. <laughs> All right, uh, let me pray, and then I'll go over a couple of announcements. Uh, Father, we uh, come before you, and Lord, we thank you that um, as we consider baptism, and here in a couple minutes, Lord, the Lord's table, Lord, I pray that you would increase our worship of the Lord Jesus and the union that we have with him. Lord, I pray that we would um, not see it as, as just something that we do out of rote, uh, religiosity, but Lord, that we would see it as something that we do to um, honor you and to worship you and to remember what you've done our, on our behalf. Lord, I praise you for um, uh, your word. Thank you, Lord, that it is sufficient and that it is authoritative. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.